it is Reformation Sunday, I thought it would be fitting for us to yet again focus on one of the great Reformation passages. And we're looking together at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want us to especially look at verses 18 to 21. But for the sake of context, I want us to go back and read verse 11 down through 21. And so we're looking at 2 Corinthians 5, 11 to 21 this morning. The Apostle Paul has been speaking here about his hope in being with Christ, the consummation hope of attaining to the resurrection. That is the great hope of all believers and yet and yet speaking about the ministry that God had given him um, during his life and the other apostles and, and, and why it was so important that he had given them that ministry. And so notice 2 Corinthians 5.11, Paul now says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. He is there referring to these super apostles who were demeaning his ministry and advancing themselves. Paul now says, and they were saying he was out of his mind, Paul says, if we are beside ourselves or out of our mind, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, or maybe a better translation, compels us, drives us forward. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is literally new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And now I want us to focus on the passage we'll look at this morning. Paul says, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, it has long been rightly noted that the Reformation was really a recovery of two things. It was a recovery of those precious doctrines of salvation. 
taught in Scripture, and it was a recovery of the right worship of God taught in Scripture. John Calvin himself, in a little uh, pamphlet that he wrote called The Necessity of Reforming the Church, said about the Reformers, he said, all of our controversies concern doctrine related either to the legitimate worship of God or to the ground of our salvation. Now, um, theologians and scholars have rightly noted that if we were to look at what is called the material, the material cause of the Reformation, what was the material cause, what was the, the foremost thing, it was the doctrine of justification. Justification by faith alone in Christ alone. We've been in the book of Romans. We've heard a lot about the doctrine of justification. But that became the central entry point from which everything else opened out. If you give up the doctrine of justification by faith alone, you give up the right worship of God, the right administration of the sacraments, and everything else is easily, quickly perverted. Now, the Reformers knew this because they were living under the shadow of the Roman Catholic Church and the Council of Trent, they were living under, if I can say this as straightforwardly as I can this morning, they were living under an absolute perversion of just about every single biblical teaching on matters of salvation and worship. And the Reformers were not going about trying to start a movement as we now sit back and see that God singularly used them for. They were not trying to start some kind of movement for which they would be remembered for doing some new thing. They saw the impact. They saw the impact that the Roman Catholic penitential system had on the people of God. Millions and millions and millions and millions of people being told in order to atone for your sin, you have to practice these penitential acts. In order to get your, your lost loved ones out of purgatory, you have to give so much money. In order for you to be right with God, you have to have the super irrigated works of super saints who are so much better than you. And that was... The, the widespread teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, and so much so that it burdened the hearts of the Reformers. They saw the impact it had on the people of God. It saw that they were not reconciled to God through those man-made legal ceremonies and rules and regulations, that they were in fact kept from being reconciled to God because the central message that reconciles sinners to God is the message that Rome had rejected and denied, that there is a double imputation. The sins of God's people count to Jesus on the cross. His righteous life reckoned to them by faith alone. And so you can understand how 2 Corinthians 5.21 became a favorite verse in the Reformation. John Calvin, noting this as he wrote uh, Charles V, and was explaining why there was need for reformation in the church, wrote these words. He says about the Roman Catholic Church, first they put contrition or penance, next works which they call works of supererogation to remove the penalties that God inflicts on sinners. Calvin says, we maintain that the sins of men are forgiven freely. We maintain that the sins of men are 
are forgiven freely. And we acknowledge no other satisfaction than that which Christ accomplished when by the sacrifice of his death he expiated our sins. Calvin says in the scriptures we have clear proof of this. He says the apostle sets this forth that he, God the Father, has made him, God the Son, to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. By the way, that's a verse you ought to memorize. That's a verse you ought to meditate on often. I did a conference this week with several good friends who are ministers in the PCA, and one of, one of those men made the point in one of his talks that when we have the accusations of Satan bearing down on us, how could you sin? If you're really a Christian, you, you wouldn't have done that again or again or again. And when our own conscience is accusing us of the guilt of our sin, my friend said, we are in jeopardy of confusing the voice of Satan and the voice of our conscience with the voice of God. Don't miss that. We are in danger of confusing the accusing voice of Satan, the condemning voice of our conscience, with the pardoning voice of God. Here, the triune God, through the Apostle Paul, says, For our sakes, Christ was made sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I want to talk this morning about three very basic things. You know these things, but you need to hear them again. First, the need for reconciliation. This whole section is dedicated to the idea of God reconciling sinners to himself. What is the need for that reconciliation? Secondly, who is the agent of that reconciliation? And third, what is the way of that reconciliation? The need, the agent, the way of reconciliation with God. Well, notice as Paul has been writing in this section, he, back earlier at the beginning of this chapter, is speaking about his hope of being in the the earthly tent, our bodies, when they are destroyed, he knows that we have a home eternal in the heavens. And, and Paul says, therefore, we make it our aim to do what is pleasing to God. He says, because, notice verse 10, 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. That's not a comforting thought. That's not a comforting thought. Every single evil thing we have ever thought, said, or acted upon, every evil desire, every evil word uttered, every, every sinful, self-pleasing action, um, those things are marked by God. They're taken account of by God. Uh, Paul says in no uncertain terms that we all, must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And, and that's not a comforting thought because we know by nature that we are alienated from God. That's why we need to be reconciled. We are alienated. Now, you know, I think if you ask most Christians in our day, what's the great need of the day? What is the great need in the world? People will say things like, we need justice. We need equity. We need justice among the nations. We need peace among the nations. I read this morning, much to, to my grief and sadness, 
a, a somewhat well-known Christian um, musician saying he had gone to church recently, I think last Sunday, and he wanted to find a place to p- pray for peace for the world, but instead he had to hear about the blood of Christ. And he lamented that he had to hear about the blood of Christ. That is an individual that doesn't know the great need of the world. Because none of those other things will be cured across from God reconciling sinners to himself through the shed blood of Jesus. That is the great need of all people through all time because we're fallen in Adam. You know, that alienation is so clear in Scripture. No, no sooner do our first parents rebel against the Lord that they go and they hide themselves. They hide themselves behind trees that the Lord has made. They hide themselves from the presence of God. And, and when the Lord comes to confront in that sort of law room setting, that law court setting in the garden, when, when the triune God comes to confront uh, the man who has sinned against him, he, he says to him, where are you? Where are you? Now, it's not because of a lack of knowledge that the infinite God says, where are you? He says that because he's trying to help our first father understand that now, because of from him, we are cut off from his life. We are, we are wandering. And we are not only cut off from uh, sweet communion with God, the idea of alienation carries with are hostile in our souls to who God is. You know, I often think about this when I prepare to I'm like, you know, that's about the, the least sweet thing I can tell anyone, is that you and I by nature are hostile to God. But that's what we are. We're alienated. That alienation then manifests itself in men being hostile with one another. You know, what's going on in the Middle East is not because one side doesn't think enough of Israel, or one side thinks too much of Palestine, it's because our first father was alienated from God. The turmoil, the alienation, the hostility. Um, The Apostle Paul will speak of that in in Ephesians chapter 2, when he says that there was a, a middle wall of division. There was enmity, there was hostility, but the real problem is not first and foremost the hostility that we may have with other image bearers. It's not first and foremost the hostility that one nation knows against another or one people group against another. It's not first and foremost the alienation and hostility some of us have known in our families, in marriages, with children. That's not first and foremost the need for reconciliation. It's our alienation from God. You know, the psalmist really gets at that picture of alienation when he ties to that what that alienation deserves and its judgment. And the psalmist cries out, If you, Lord, should mark iniquity, O Lord, who can stand? If you, Lord, should mark iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? If you took count of just one of my sins, just one, one outburst of wrath, one self-pleasing proclamation, one, one hateful word toward another image bearer, one act of sexual immorality in the mind, in the heart, any, any 
any single sin. The psalmist says, if you, Lord, marked iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? And what the psalmist is saying, if God doesn't count my sin against me, then whom does he count it against? There must be a righteous response to my unrighteousness and my alienation. It's as if, if I can say this, if I can say this cautiously this morning, it's as if the psalmist knew in his own soul that he deserved judgment for his alienation and sin. And if I can say this this morning, you and I know it in our souls. Paul will say at the end of Romans 1 that all men, knowing the righteous judgment of God, not only practice those things that deserve it, but approve of those who so do it. This alienation is deserving of judgment. And so that's the great need that all individuals have. You know, this is, this is what fueled the Reformation. It was, it was Martin Luther being grieved over how the Roman Catholic Church had bound the consciences of men and women, kept them in their sins, kept them from God's mercy and grace, lied about how they would receive mercy and grace, told them another gospel, taught, taught another gospel. That's, what, that's the only reason we have a Reformation because they cared deeply about seeing men and women who were alienated from God being reconciled to Him. Well, notice one of the glorious things as we look at our section together is that there is an agent of reconciliation. You know, this is so glorious. Don't miss this. Look at the beginning of verse 18. Paul now having said that the only thing that matters is if men and women have been made new creatures in Christ, if they've undergone that regenerating grace of God, if they've known the redeeming work of God in their lives, notice what he says. He says, all this is from God. This is an awesome word to us this morning. All this is from God. And one of the most comforting thoughts I can give you this morning having told you that you are living in hostility to God by nature, is that there is not one thing you can do to bring about reconciliation with God. And the infinite and eternal God is not waiting for you to come up with a plan to reconcile yourself to Him. He sees the alienation. He recognizes that we're the ones that have caused it. And then Paul says, but all this is from God who has given us the reconciliation. Isn't that amazing? Whenever you're tempted to think hard thoughts of the infinitely holy God, remember that all his purposes of redeeming love and mercy are all from himself. They are all directed to you. They are all with a view to reconciling you. And they will never fail in the execution of them. Isn't that marvelous? All this is from God. You know, we oftentimes take comfort in those Reformed and Reformation principles that it's all to the glory of God, and it's all because God has set forth Christ to be a sufficient sacrifice. It's all in Christ. It's all by faith alone. It's all by grace alone. But, but you could throw a big overarching principle over all of it, and the big principle of the Reformation, the principle of the apostolic gospel is all of this is of God. All of this is of God. God is the initiator. God has planned the reconciliation. God in His infinite wisdom has devised a way to reconcile alienated sinners to Himself. And we could never have thought it up 
no matter how much we work collectively to devise some sort of plan, we could never devise a plan to reconcile ourselves to God. And yet God, who is rich in grace and mercy, devised a plan to reconcile us to himself. Notice this, that Paul includes himself there in verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us. He's talking about the apostles. That's the the apostolic us. He's reconciled us to himself and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying we have experienced the reconciliation that comes from him exclusively. And we want you to know that same reconciliation that we have experienced. You know, there's nothing, there is nothing almost so grievous as seeing family members unreconciled in this life, uh, friends unreconciled in this life. Um, There's a story of Ralph Erskine, one of the founders of um, the Associate Reformed Presbyterian denomination, Erskine College and Seminary, um, being the fruit of his labors. And Ralph and Ebenezer Erskine were were um, men who were seeking to bring about gospel reformation in their day in a church that had lost much of the greatness of the gospel, the freeness of the gospel. And, and one, of the, one of the falling outs that Ralph Erskine had was with his son-in-law. And they were divided over it. Um, they, would, they would not speak to each other um, until Ralph Erskine lay on his deathbed and he begged that someone send and bring his son-in-law so they could be reconciled, and his son-in-law refused to come. It's one of the sad, heartbreaking stories of church history, and we feel that. If you've been betrayed by someone, you feel that breach, that lack of reconciliation. If you've had a friendship come to an end, if you've been unreconciled to a family member or another loved one, there's, there is enormous pain to that. How much more? How much more should we feel our alienation from God? How much more should we be eager to see that remedied? And here's the glorious good news. All of this is from God. He has devised a plan. He has made a way of reconciliation. He has enacted that plan. Think about that. The next time you think to yourself, can I really trust God to forgive my sins? Can I really trust that He'll receive me if I go to Him? in faith and repentance? Can I really know that He's for me? Listen, Paul says, all of this is of God. He is the stream from which this comes. His goodness, His bounty are shown in this. This is our God. This is our God. All of this, Paul says, is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself. Notice verse 19. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Now, the rest of this passage is really taken up with the way of that reconciliation. Um, Man needs to be reconciled to God. God has devised a way of reconciliation, and now the apostle explains what it is. And as I had already read just a moment ago, notice this, Paul makes that great declaration in verse 19, that is, God was in Christ. I actually prefer 
the way the New King James quotes that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. Think about that. Whatever Christ was doing, God was doing. Uh, Jesus is God, manifest in the flesh. In Him, Paul says, was the fullness of deity dwelling bodily. He is very God of very God. The Apostle John said the Word was in the beginning with God and the Word was God. But he's saying something more than that here. He's saying God the Father was in the Son so that whatever the Son was doing, the Father was likewise doing. Every member of the Godhead was at work in bringing about reconciliation of sinners to Himself. Listen to this. Uh, Martin Luther. I'm sorry. Listen to this. Um, uh, This way of reconciliation takes place with God pouring out His justice on the Lord Jesus and in a very real sense, God taking the judgment that we deserve. That's what Paul means when he says God was in Christ reconciling. How was He reconciling? He was removing the enmity and the hostility by taking the judgment on Himself. God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. Notice this, not counting their trespasses against them. Now, we often talk about the imputation of Christ's righteousness. We're going to talk about that in a minute. That, that his righteous, perfect, sinless, righteous record is counted as if it's ours, by faith alone in him. But the scriptures have another side to that, and that is the non-imputation of your sins to you. There, there may not be of explaining the forgiveness of sin to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. What does that mean? Well, if he were to impute or credit your trespasses to you, that would mean every sinful thing you've ever done, he would hold to your account. What Paul is saying is the first way in which God enacts reconciliation in Christ is not holding your trespasses against you. That's glorious. Now, how can you do that? He's a just God. He has to punish sin. He would be unjust if he didn't punish sin. He would be an evil God. He would be capricious if he didn't do what he has to do in according to his own nature. He would be duplicitous in what he says to us. He must punish sin, But he says he will not impute it to us. And the question again is, what the psalmist said, if God doesn't count my sin against me, against whom then does he count it? And notice this. He says in verse 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. How did he make him to be sin? The Lord Jesus never sinned. By the way, get that deep into your minds and hearts. Every one of us have a mountain of iniquity against us. And the only one who's never sinned is the Lord Jesus. Thirty-some years of perfect, unblemished, 
spotless, worshipful righteousness and holiness and sinlessness. That's amazing. All the scorn that the Lord Jesus received at the hands of his brethren, at the hands of his countrymen, at the hands of the Romans, the times that he was mocked, the times that he was despised throughout the entirety of his life, never one harsh word back. Never one sinful thought in retaliation. Always committing himself perfectly to him who judges righteously, his Father in heaven. Never never pulling back from the work that he came to accomplish. Never giving in to one uh, sexual desire. Never giving in to any impurity, no impure desires in the holy, sinless heart of Jesus. And then, and this is amazing, as William Still has often said, the greatest thing Jesus ever did was to die sinlessly. All the way to the cross he makes it, without sin. All the way to being nailed on the tree. And when he's nailed on the tree, he does not sin. He does not hurl cursing and insults as was common with other crucified criminals at bystanders at the foot of the cross. He prays, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Sinlessness on the cross. Isn't that amazing? Sinless thoughts, words, and actions. And yet... Paul makes this great statement here, for our sake, He, that is God the Father, made Him to be sin who knew no sin. Now I want you to think about this. When I think about all the wrong things I've done, and there have been a lot of wrong things, and then I think about all the wrong things you've done, and there have been a lot of wrong things. I don't even need to know them to know you're way worse than you think you are. And all of those things, from all of those the Father gave the Son in eternity, from every tongue, tribe, nation, and language throughout all of human history, tens of millions of individuals whose sins are imputed to the Son on the cross as if He had done all of them, as if He had done every one of them. I love this quote by Martin Luther. On the cross, by imputation, Christ, as it were, became the greatest transgressor, murderer, adulterer, thief, rebel, and blasphemer that ever was or ever could be in the world. Before God, the Lord Jesus was as if he was the worst thing you have ever done, as if he had done it himself, because our sins were counted to him as our representative. Listen to this. I love this. Luther says, Our merciful Father sent His only Son into the world and said to Him, You are now Peter the liar, Paul the persecutor, David the adulterer, Adam the disobedient, the thief on the cross. My son, you must pay the world's iniquity. Think just for a moment on the thief on the cross. Here are two criminals both of whom the Gospels say are deriding the Savior, though they are crucified right next to Him. One of them, the grace of God comes to while He's hanging on the cross, and He has made a new creature, 
And as he hangs on the cross, he recognizes the sinlessness of, of Jesus. He says, he rebukes the other thief. He says, be quiet. You know, we deserve to be here, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, what enabled the eternal Son of God nailed to the cross to say that to that thief, except that while that thief was dying next to Jesus for his own criminal offenses, Christ was dying in his place and for his sin. Is that not amazing? Feet away from him, all that sin imputed to the Son, so that the Son could say, today you will be with me in paradise. Again, the psalmist said, if you, Lord, should mark iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? But he does mark it. He marks it against the Son. There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Um, that is one side of the way of reconciliation, the non-imputation of our sin to us, because it's imputed to Christ. But then there is the double imputation. Not only does he become sin for us, actually make it bigger than that. And in Galatians 3, he'll say Christ became a curse for us. He became a curse for us. Not just he was cursed, he became a curse for us that we might be blessed, that we might receive the blessing of Abraham. Well, how does that happen? Well, Paul says here, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What a, what a glorious exchange. By the way, I can think of nothing that I would rather tell people than this. All the wrong you've done, all the guilt, everything you have to answer for on Judgment Day, all put on the Son, and everything He did right and pleasing to His Father, all given to you as if you did it. love the way the Heidelberg Catechism captures the essence of this when it speaks of justification. And one of the lines in that, that, um, that question and answer section, one of the lines in those answers is it's, it, that it's because of Christ's righteousness imputed to me, it's, it's as if I had never sinned. It's as if I had never sinned. Let that sink deep down. By the way, this is what fueled the Reformation. Let that sink down because at the, at, at the end of the day, our hearts are resistant to that because it calls you off of your... It says you can't do anything, but He has done more than you could imagine. Um, if I can say it reverently this morning, my fallen, self-righteous heart hates that. My regenerate heart loves it. You see, He has done everything. He is everything. He has affected the way of reconciliation. Notice, by the way, can I say this this morning? Notice that there's not one single thing in this passage that you're called to do. That's glorious. He doesn't say, here's what God did, now if you do your part, you'll be reconciled. He doesn't say, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God, God in him, if we have enough good works uh, by the Spirit working in us and enough evidences of his grace. He simply tells us the way of reconciliation. And then, and this is awesome, then he sends ministers of the gospel to proclaim it, and he uses them to urge sinners to receive, by faith, 
what he's done already in time and space. Notice this, I love this. Paul says in verse 20, Therefore, speaking about the apostles and subsequent ministers of the gospel, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Now that means right now, in just a moment when I say, be reconciled to God, it is God urging you to be reconciled to him, not me. That's what Paul's saying. We urge and appeal to you, be reconciled to God because it is God making his appeal through us. Think about that. God has affected the way of reconciliation. There's nothing left to be done. It's all been finished. By the way, when, when Jesus cries out on the cross, when he cries out, it is finished, he's saying every obstacle to you being reconciled to God because the obstacle is your sin, every obstacle has been removed. It is finished. Every obstacle to reconciliation has been removed. It is finished. There's nothing we're waiting on. Um, Again, let me say this this morning. The Lord doesn't say to you, I did all that, now if you do good enough, you'll be reconciled. He now urges you on the basis of what he's done in Christ to be reconciled to God. Now, let me say this this morning there is a chance that there are people in this room that have never been reconciled to God. And I'm going to tell you this morning, there's absolutely nothing you can do to affect that reconciliation except by simple faith to receive and rest in the Lord Jesus and to say, He is my reconciliation. He is my righteousness. He's taken my sin. I believe that God has accomplished what he said he would do in order to reconcile me. And I will rise and I will be reconciled to him on the basis of what he has done. That's it. There's there's nothing else we can bring. There's no human effort we can add to this. There are no prayers or Bible reading. There's there's nothing. I want you to read your Bible. I I want you to attend worship on the Lord's Day as he commands you. That does not reconcile you to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I love, I love the way Charles Wesley ends this. I want to close with this because the right response to this and this morning for us is to receive these truths, to know, to know certainly that they are true, to rest our souls on them, and then to live out of them, to sing his praises. I love the way Charles Wesley captures this in Arise My Soul. He says, my God is reconciled. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence, I now draw nigh. With confidence, I now draw nigh. And Father Abba, Father cry. Do you see what Wesley's doing there? He's saying, because God has provided the way of reconciliation, because he is the agent of that reconciliation, when we trust in the Lord Jesus by faith alone, we can sing with Wesley, my God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. You know, I know many of you have heard this a thousand times. I hope, I hope that you will hear it with freshness 
with joy, with clarity. Um, This is what turned the world upside down in the Reformation. This is what set free millions of people held captive under man-made religion. Penance, indulgences, purgatory. And, And the Lord says to you this morning, He says, the way of reconciliation has been made. It is all from God. It is all of God. And he urges you, be reconciled. Because he who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you that you have taken it upon yourself to find a way of reconciliation, to devise a plan by which you might forgive our sins and yet still punish sin by punishing it on the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, we thank you that though you knew no sin, you were made sin for us. You have stood in our place. You have borne the punishment that we deserve and you have given us your righteousness. Father, we pray that these truths would be like water to our souls this morning. Would you please send your Holy Spirit to write them indelibly on our hearts, to quiet our minds and our consciences. We pray that we would see in the blood of Christ all of our sins not being imputed to us, being washed away by your mercy and grace. Father in heaven, we pray that the gospel would take deep root in us and that we would know more of that glorious, gracious reconciliation that comes from you alone. Lord, would you do this in us and would you do it for your glory? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.